Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the podcast, The Joyful Frugalista, and now here's your host, Serena Bird. This podcast is brought to you by The Joyful Fashionista, an online marketplace for buying and selling secondhand and sustainable clothing. Make cash selling as you declutter or buy sustainable and fabulous fashion. Yuma Fruglisters, and welcome. Today I have a very special guest, and of course all of my guests are special. My guest today is someone who is a self-proclaimed money nerd who loves spreadsheets. But before I introduce her, I have a favour to ask of you. If you love this podcast as much as I do creating it, please pay it forward by following it. Even better, share it with your friends, and I really love comments. Reading comments and seeing your support is really what motivates and encourages me to continue and keep going. Now to my very special guest. Wally Miller is a financial coach who helps high-achieving young professionals become work-optional by taking control of their finances, but without sacrificing their lattes and brunches. Wally is a first-generation college graduate and daughter of an immigrant. She didn't grow up talking about shares and investing with her family, but then she read a Forbes article that made her re-evaluate what she was spending her money on and the true cost of her purchases. Now, I think to say, say it's fairly safe that she's a convert to the frugalista path, but she's particularly a convert to the work optional financial independence path. Welcome, Polly. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited about this conversation. As you mentioned, I'm definitely a money nerd, but I think <laughs> conversations like this just help speaking about money a little bit less taboo. Oh, yes, this is so important. And especially in my generation, I'm a generation X woman. We didn't grow up talking about money. I was very fortunate. My mum was a successful businesswoman and real estate investor. So we grew up at home talking about money. But most of my colleagues at school didn't. Like we were, I think, that first generation to really expect that as women we could go forth and have careers. But <laughs> somehow we thought that the career was going to be the magic that was going to fix all of our woes. We'd just earn more money. Uh, yes. Isn't that the big uh, sort of the big bamboozlement we have had, right? Yeah. And I think particularly, so I'm a millennial, most of my clients tend to be millennials and Gen Zers. And I think we have realized that this idea of having to work 20, 30, 40 years so that then you could, quote unquote, retire just was not something that we wanted to do. And we wanted to have some additional options. So buying into that whole notion of get a good college education, have a good salary job, then you'll be taken care of just doesn't seem like it's the only option. And thankfully, it's not the only option. You can definitely take care and take control of your finances. So you're able to control that time freedom. Mm, and yeah, it, it definitely does give you freedom, doesn't it? When you have financial independence, and it is not the only option going to work. Not more than nine to five. Yeah, it's really about leveraging, right? Leverage that nine to five income so that you can, you know, it's not about deprivation. It's not about all of these sacrifices, but it's about leveraging and making your money work for you. I know something that you have talked about and want to have more conversations about is this whole investing, right? For me, we didn't talk about money growing up. There were a lot of 
a lot of things I learned indirectly about money. So my parents didn't show me how to write in a checkbook or write a check or how to pay bills or, <laughs> you know, how to, how to balance a current account or how to balance a bank account. But there were things that happened. So when I, you know, I couldn't just ask my parents for anything that I wanted and get it right. There were some times where the electricity would be turned off because maybe the payment was late. So there were a lot of things I learned indirectly about money and the lack of money, right? We didn't have all of the things that we wanted. I'm very grateful. We always had a roof over our head. We always had food on the table, but sometimes that food wasn't what we wanted either, right? <laughs> it was, yeah. you know, sometimes it was just like a bowl of rice. But some of that growing up in, in a lower income family really showed me some frugal tendencies that I still have to this day, right? <laughs> and really taught me how to, to value money. But yeah, conversations around money really don't happen so much. Well, positive conversations about money, perhaps just to reframe it. My late Nana, she grew up in that Great Depression era. So I certainly got a lot of frugal tips from her. But I grew up comfortably middle class. My mother had grown up in a working class environment where things had been very tough, but she was self-made. And by the time I came along, you know, she was in a very good financial situation. So consequently, we had a lot of conversations over the dinner table about how to negotiate a real estate deal, what was happening with the real estate market, what was going up, what was going down, all of those sorts of conversations. But when you are dealing with poverty, they're not the sort of conversations you're having, are you? Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, we were just trying to make sure that again, that we kept that food on the table and a roof over our head. And I think one of the things that happened for me was that I was very fortunate that I got a good college education. And I ended up graduating college and had a, a well paying job in my mid 20s. And so the problem though, that happened was because I didn't learn how to manage money, I didn't learn how to leverage money. I didn't learn how to build wealth with money. I wanted to make sure that all my bills were paid. And I thought if you would have asked me then if I was good with money, I said, yes, I don't have credit card debt. <laughs> I pay all my bills on time. But after my bills were paid, I had no idea what to do with the extra. And so in my mind, I became a mindless shopper and a very impulsive one. So I'm thankful that I stayed out of credit card debt, but I just wasted so much money. And it wasn't until my late 20s when I calculated how much money I had made in my lifetime. And I realized, where did all that money go? But I realized I was missing something. There was mm. something I was basically one paycheck away from losing everything that I had worked for. And the component that I was missing was beyond just saving money. It wasn't just good enough to have a couple hundred dollars in the bank. It was how do you build wealth? And even that term was very foreign to me. I'm like wealth, wealth is for the rich. Wealth is for the athlete and the artist and <laughs> the actresses. Yeah, the one who win lotto, lotto rewards and other things, those sort of people, the famous people. Right, exactly. And so I couldn't even really relate to that term. But what I did relate to was, okay, I've made a good amount of money in my 20s and I had nothing to show for it except a closet full of clothes. And so, uh, yeah, I spent my 20s making good money and spending every dollar of it. 
That just reminds me so much of the Sex in the City sort of scene where Carrie realises she's got like a whole heap of shoes. She can't afford to move an apartment, but she's got fabulous shoes. Right, right. And, you know, one of the things that I talk to my clients about, I say, look, I honestly, I don't care how you spend your money. But what I care about is the type of life that you want to live. Design the life that you want to live and then let's use money as a tool to get it. Because what tends to happen is that if we look at what we purchase, if we look at our credit card statements, our bank statements, it's a reflection of what we value most. And in my 20s, what it was showing me was that I valued clothes and shoes. And that really wasn't what I valued. And so I had to align my my spending, you know, that value aligned spending. I'm sure you've heard that term before, but it was, you know, align my spending with what I truly valued. Mm, but it's so easy to get caught in that trap. Even I'm no longer a woman in my 20s, but I remember that, that, you know, there's so much focus on what you wear and and how you look, and you obviously want to meet a potential partner. So going out on Friday nights, going out on Saturday nights, you always wanted good outfits. You wanted handbags. You wanted nice shoes. You judge other people by what they were wearing. It's quite hard to get off that treadmill. Yeah, absolutely. You know, for me, it wasn't even that I was like a fashionista. I wasn't buying very expensive things. But because I grew up in a household where we didn't have a whole lot, I thought this was my opportunity to buy the things that I missed out on. So I wouldn't buy the $400 pair of jeans, right? I was like, oh, I was too frugal for that. (laughs) But I had a closet, I had 25 jeans that cost me, you know, $40 each, and only one of them was perfect fitting. So it was just buying and buying and buying, and I would buy things on sale, but I wasn't respecting my closet. I wasn't respecting my money. And one of the ways that that happened or that I, what was proof of that was that I had clothes with tags on them that I never wore because eh, it didn't fit quite right. Or perhaps it didn't, it wasn't really my style, but it was a good quote unquote deal. And so this was how my, my shopping really became a problem. I would go to a department store or even to like a Target or something to buy toilet paper and leave with a cart full of home decor items and throw pillows. And (laughs) of course, it's so easy to do that. And yeah, supermarkets and discount stores, are they're they're designed that way to entice you to buy. It's it's no coincidence. And you might think, well, you switch to online, that'll be easier. But online sites also have their own triggers, AI enabled searches. If you like this, you'll like this. It's, it's really hard to get away from that. Yeah, 100%. I mean, If we think going into the stores is difficult, I mean, online shopping, for sure, all of a sudden, you might be scrolling on Instagram, and now you find this thing that you didn't even know you needed in your life, right? (laughs) So (laughs) it starts to pick up on some of those things. So but there, you know, I think one of the really important things is to understand what your spending triggers are. When you're at a store, when you're at a checkout line, when you're about to click add to cart, Think about how you're feeling at the moment. Are you sad? Are you, did you have a bad day and trying to buy something to make you feel better? Are you happy and excited and you want to buy something to celebrate that? And so I think to really understanding what your emotional spending triggers are is really important. So once you know that, then you know how to pay attention to that because there's nothing wrong with buying the things that you love and the things that are going to add value. 
Again, this is not about deprivation, Mm -hmm. but it's about really being intentional. So from going from mindless shopping and mindless spending to being an intentional shopper and intentional spender. Wow, that, that is really important, that intent that's there. And I'm sure you perhaps can relate that there's been times in my life where I've had relationship breakdowns or, you know, really difficult things happening, but usually, you know, relationship has ended and there's nothing better than catching up with some girlfriends and going shopping from being at home where you're feeling a bit sad and sorry for yourself and eating too much chocolate and ice cream or whatever else it is. Suddenly you're out in the bright lights of the shopping mall, pre-COVID that is, or assuming it's still safe. And everything looks so bright and so pretty and there's lots of people around and you're there with your friends and you're having lots of fun and you can just put it on your credit card or you just tap and pay. It's just all so easy now. And that's fine for an occasional thing. The problem is, I guess, is when you do that all the time, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, again, it's not about giving up the things that you that add value and add joy. But I think one of the things that made a shift for me was Have you ever heard of the term a no spend challenge? Yes. (laughs) They often do it around Black Friday, right? There's um, a particular. I realized that I had a huge shopping and impulsive shopping issue when I couldn't complete a no spend challenge. And the idea of a no spend challenge is to separate a few days or maybe a week and say, I'm not going to spend any money except on the most essential things. So things like food, pay your bills. And I remember that I tried many times to complete a a seven day no spend challenge and I couldn't complete it. I would buy the book at the checkout counter. I would buy a candy bar at the vending machine. I would pick up lunch because either I didn't prepare and pack lunch or uh, I didn't want to eat what I did pack. And so I realized that, okay, this is where my money is going, right? It wasn't on the expensive things. It was on all of these $10, $20, $30 purchases that I was making on very consistent basis that was stealing away from being able to save a little bit more and to begin building wealth through investing. And so once I sort of was able to capture and understand where my spending was going, I will say that I always considered myself a money nerd because I always found it interesting. I like to gamify saving money. So I was the coupon clipper and I always (laughs) wanted to make the the most out of my dollar. And what, again, there's nothing wrong with that. I, I mentioned earlier, I'm not necessarily part of the minimalism movement. I don't even necessarily consider myself frugal. But I do have some frugal tendencies. There's certain things that I just wouldn't spend money on if I can help it. And so saving money and reducing expenses is a really great thing. But what are you going to do with the money that you actually are, quote unquote, saving? And so what would happen for me is that I would buy a good deal if something was on sale and I saved $15 on it. Well, then I would just spend the extra $15 on something else instead of maximizing, okay, I was able to spend less money on this. Now I'm going to use that money in order to build my savings account, save for a rainy day, save for that emergency fund, save for maybe a goal that I had. And when I was able to finally that little switch flipped, (laughs) and that turned on, that was when I realized, okay, I need to make sure that I'm really leveraging the amount of money that I'm making and Mm. saving. Yeah, no, they're all great points. And I want to go back a little bit to your comments about little savings and 
little spendings and how they all add up and why it's important to save the small things. And it's particularly too in reaction to reading something that someone had written who said that this is total and utter rubbish and that giving up things like coffees, and I know you have a view on coffees, but you know, giving up these little things doesn't matter because there's only a few big things that makes a difference like where we live or what we drive. And so if you get those big things right, you can spend whatever you like. So what's your view on that, on the little things adding up versus the big things? Yeah, so I agree with that statement, right? Where it's, um, I have this acronym that I use and, and I mentioned earlier, I tell my clients, I don't care where you spend your money, right? What I care about is tell me the life that you want. Tell me the financial goals, the milestones you wanna reach. And I'm going to hold you accountable to that. And if you can really focus on some of the big areas and in, I, I use this, this acronym, which is reduce the fat or cut the fat. And it's F-A-T-T. F is in food. A is accommodation or housing. The first T is in transportation costs. And then the fourth letter and the second T is in taxes. So reduce your expenses in food, accommodation, transportation, and taxes. If you can really focus on those things, which tend to take the majority of where our spending goes, then having something like a $4 latte isn't going to make a huge deal. Now, that being said, I think that it's really important to understand your pattern. Why are you buying the four or five dollar daily latte? Is it because it's your one piece of something that you're doing out of habit, or does it really, really bring you joy? And I think there's sometimes that we spend money out of mere habit, right? It's just a routine, it's just a ritual, yeah. and there's no thought behind it. But if this is something where you're like, look, I bring my own lunch, I'm not spending money on anything else. I need my daily coffee. It really starts my day off. It's sort of that trigger to go from home to work mode. Then go ahead and do it. This is about when we're thinking about reducing expenses, this is about spending intentionally. Do the things that you love most. Do the things that really, really add value to your life, but cut out all the other things. Yeah, no, thank you. This is really important. I'm not a coffee drinker. I'm a tea drinker. And I was asked years ago how much I spent on coffee. And I sort of went, well, actually, I drink tea. I actually worked out in Australian dollars that it was anywhere, or Australian currency, it was anywhere between three and six cents that I spent on a cup of tea. I <laughs> made it home because it was really that cheap. And some days I can get that even cheaper. And some days I even forage for things that like, a, uh, say, wild fennel and things. So it's, it, it ends up being free. And currently a mug of, of coffee, like a latte or a flat white that many people in Australia enjoy is about $5 Australian. So $5, seven days a week, it adds up. And then often most people really love their coffee, so they won't stop at one. They'll probably go out twice, maybe three times a day. And usually when they're there, they'll pick up something to eat. They'll pick up an egg and bacon roll. They'll pick up a muffin. They'll pick up a scone. They'll pick up, I don't know an Anzac cookie or something. <laughs> so it, that habit isn't just that one thing. It adds up to other things. Yeah, I totally agree with that, right? I think it's really, again, sort of getting to the root of what you're trying to do. One of the areas that I was also spending a lot of money on was eating out. But when I thought back of where did I eat last week, I had no memory of it. That means that I wasn't valuing it. 
And so today I still go out to restaurants, but instead of going to restaurants that are not memorable or things that I I make sure that I'm having a true experience. And so it's really about finding out what it is that you want. It is really easy to want to spend time with family and friends and spend money at a restaurant, meet for brunch, have lunch, grab dinner. But if the true goal is to spend quality time with people, is there a way that you could do that? In a, a, can you find creative ways to do that that doesn't cost money? And mm. so it can be really, it's finding those little things of, okay, what is adding value to your life? What is adding joy? And I don't even have a problem with somebody buying their daily coffee if they are saving or if they're not spending money in other areas, mm. right? But I think the habit is really important because if you're just spending that $5 every single day, because you can't be bothered to make a cup of coffee. (laughs) It's kind of one of those things where it's just like, okay, is it really adding value to your life? Is it really bringing you joy? Or are you doing it just out of routine? Yeah, these are all great. To add to this, before we talk about some other things, my father, when he was recovering from depression and anxiety, One of the things that got him out of bed every morning was that he would get up and he would walk to his local shopping strip where there were some great cafes. We have a lot of Italian migrants and he is in Melbourne, which is one of the cafe capitals of the world. So some of the best coffee there. And he would go and, you know, that that interaction with the friendly owner of the cafe, the sort of patriarch of the family who would be there, he'd buy it, he'd sit down, he'd read the free paper. To him, that was worth a lot more than $5, right? It was kind of a really important ritual. But contrast that then with, say, someone who hates their work, they got in late, they're just not focused, they they haven't sort of can't be bothered to go and, and make coffee from the pod machine. So they go down to the cafe and while they're there, they buy their lunch and they buy everything else and they get further and further in debt, which means they work longer and longer in that job they didn't like in the first place. So, yeah. I know, absolutely, right? There's this sort of difference. And again, if you can sort of, identify what is the spending trigger, what is causing you to spend money in a certain way, I think that's where we need to get to the bottom of. Yeah, exactly. Now, I want to go back and ask you something else, which is this term work optional. A lot of your coaching is around ensuring that you create a work optional culture for people. What does that mean? Oh, I love this question. So When I I had a really fulfilling career and job, and I think I was really lucky in that I loved the work that I did. It brought me a lot of joy. It challenged me in really good ways. But when there was a change in management, my sort of ideal workplace turned into a very toxic work environment. Oh, I can so relate to this. (laughs) (laughs) And even though the work was still very fulfilling, if the atmosphere in the work environment and the workplace changes, it can put a real quick damper on going to work. And every day I, I just a little bit more and a little bit more was regretting <laughs> or, or was not looking forward to showing up to work. And I tried to, you know, you just try different things and it just wasn't working. It was a very toxic work environment. And I sort of sat down and this was a couple years after I had that, okay, what have I been doing with my money? And I realized that I couldn't just walk away. I couldn't just leave my job and find another work 
you know, another uh, job that quickly that would pay me what I wanted. And I was sort of tied to this place that I didn't want to be at. I always had the option to leave, but I didn't want to lose what I had worked for, you know, so hard for. So I started thinking, what, what am I doing wrong? Again, I was just a paycheck. Maybe if I missed one paycheck, I would be okay. But if two paychecks didn't come in, I was going to lose my home and, you know, lose my car. And I just didn't like being in that situation. And so I went to where most people go nowadays, which is the world of Google, to try to figure out what am I supposed to do? Am I really supposed to stay in this toxic work environment for another 20 years? And that just didn't sit well with me. And I came across this Forbes article that talked about a couple in their 40s, in their early 40s, who had retired. And that just opened my eyes to a whole different animal of finances. And although I had become a little bit better with saving money, so now I had a few thousand dollars in my savings account, I realized that the component that I was missing was that wealth building component. Mm. And when I learned what they were doing, and it wasn't that they were each making six figures, but that they were leveraging things like investments, that that was how they were able to buy their freedom. And so that was something that really, really attracted me. And that was when I first got introduced to this idea that retirement isn't an age. Retirement is a number. And if you can get this number, get to this number as soon as possible, if you can work really hard to get to that number, you can be work optional. My idea wasn't to leave work and sit at a beach and not do anything. But what I wanted was freedom over my time. Mm, That's a big one. A lot of people find this quite confronting that your generation and younger, that you're not planning to go to college, get into big debt, buy the big house and then be a slave in your workplace, a nice compliant employee for 40 years or longer. And there's often this, this sense that you should, you know, you've got these skills, you should be contributing to society. How dare you go off and do what you want to do? Yeah, well, one of the things that that existed in previous generations that doesn't exist for or is almost non-existent in my generation is this whole idea of having employer-sponsored pensions. So back in the day, you would put in a good 25 years, your employer would take care of you, and you could retire off of your employer's pension. There are very few jobs here in the United States where employers pay for a pension that would cover all of your costs in retirement. So being loyal to one company that isn't going to take care of you after being there for two decades doesn't sound appealing at all. And so if our generation and uh, the younger generations have to take care of their own retirement, why not take full advantage of being able to say, you know what? If I can do this in 15 years or 10 years or in 20 years on at my own rate so that I can decide when and how long I work and where I work, why not? And I think that's where so many people are attracted to me because I talk about that. It's not that our generation doesn't want to work. We just want to work on the projects that bring us the most fulfillment We want to be able to have more control over our time to either build families, to gain experience in other ways. 
travel the world, whatever the case might be, take an opportunity or take a chance with entrepreneurship. So there's all of these different things. And if you can save enough money, if you can build a nest egg that will allow you that freedom, then why not? Yeah, this is all music to my ears. And in my case, you know, having left my work two and a bit years ago because of some toxic culture, having gone back a little bit for last year just to try it out, but then eventually decided I definitely wanted to be out. Definitely, it's given me more space to explore my own entrepreneurial ideas. And in fact, my next book, which is out on the 12th of April, is called The Joyful Startup Guide. So it's all about encouraging people to create a heart-centered business and follow their passions. Yeah, I, I love that. I think when I first heard of this idea of investing, the easiest way for me to think about investing was in real estate. And I am a real estate investor, but it wasn't until I really dug in deep and understood what the stock market could do because real estate investing was it was understandable to me i could buy a property then i could rent it out or i could buy a property add value to it then sell it for higher so it was really easy for me to understand the concept of real estate investing but the barrier to entry was really high you have to have the <laughs> that that down payment and you have to have either a team that's going to help you remodel or renovate real estate state property, right? But the stock market is one of the like laziest ways, right? It is one of the easiest ways to build wealth, but it's not the only one either. There's also entrepreneurship. And that is something that I've also in the last couple of years really embraced. And so really trying to figure out what is the avenue that aligns best with you? Is it yep. real estate? Is it the stock market? Is it entrepreneurship? Is it all three? Think about what best most aligns with what you value and your personality and give it a try. I thought investing in the stock market was gambling. And I will say there are people who do speculate and it is gambling, but it doesn't have to be that way. And so if you can sort of understand something as simple as the power and the magic of compound interest, then you can quickly be able to understand how you can leverage something like any type of investment, again, real estate, entrepreneurship, or uh, the stock market to build that wealth. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's compound interest is fabulous. Now I have one final question for you, which is, do you have yeah. a frugalista tip to share? Yes. Yeah, so one of the things that I do, as I mentioned, I don't consider myself frugal, but other people might, and is something <laughs> that I do even now is when I go to theme parks, so whether it's Disney World or Disneyland or any type of theme park, I pack my own lunch. I grab a cooler. I will pay the $5 or $8 it costs to get a locker inside of the theme park. But I am packing my drinks, my snacks, and my lunch because who has $20 to spend on a burger? So that is one of the things that I do even till this day. Oh, my God. I remember taking my kids to SeaWorld and I promised them an ice cream and then I looked at the cost and I went, oh, well, I promised now so I can't go back. But I'm now like anytime we go to a theme park, it's like you will get an ice cream. You just won't get it there. We'll have one later. Yes. Exactly, exactly. So that is something that I just, I think it's, it's, for some people, it's part of the whole experience, right? It's like you go to the theme park, and you want to buy all of the things with the fancy souvenir cup. But I don't value that. And if what I'm valuing is the parks and the 
things and the lights, I can pack my own bottles of water and juice and drinks and sandwiches. And uh, yeah, so that is something that I do to this day. Fabulous. Well, thank you so much, Wally. Now people can find you at your financially thriving website, I gather. Yes, I'm most active on Instagram, which is at financially underscore thriving. Uh, You can connect with me there or visit me on the website, as you mentioned, financiallythriving.com. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Wally. Thank you so much, Serena. It's been great. Wonderful. You've been listening to The Joyful Frugalista with Serena Bird. And of course, sound has been by Neil Hadley.